0: Gonna have a real good time together We're gonna to have a real good time together We're gonna to laugh the child together Have a real good time
1: together Na Na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na.
2: Welcome back to Jokerman Podcast. Uh, it's about Lou Reed. It's about John Cale. It's it was about Bob Dylan, and today it's kind of going to be about probably all three. It's Larry Ratso Sloman in uh, in our company. We couldn't be more thrilled.
3: He's really a Ratso Man that needs no introduction, but we'll give him one anyways. Uh, first and foremost, for the listeners of the Joker Man podcast, uh, maybe most notable, director of the Joker Man music video. I mean, um, I didn't.
2: We we're giving it away uh, right away, but you got
3: to you got to lead with the fire. Pro- producer
2: of the video, not director.
3: Oh, uh, on Wikipedia it says you're the director.
4: Well, Wikipedia. Well, Wikipedia who, who can trust been... Wikipedia? Oh, who the hell wrote that? I didn't, uh, but, <laughs> George Lois, the great Madison Avenue ad man, was the director.
3: Creditor's I, director.
4: I, I was the producer.
3: Well, let's let's maybe just start there, and we'll we'll go from there. So, what was uh, how did you get roped into producing? I guess the Joker Man music video.
4: Well, what happened was uh, uh, this was uh, um, uh, Bob had just finished an album. He was being managed at that time by Bill Graham and uh, um we had been friends well for years by then uh but also bill graham and i uh, were close because bill graham actually gave me my first break and without bill graham none of this would have been possible
3: sure bill graham legendary concert promoter from here in the bay area actually
4: right right and what happened was i was uh uh, covering uh, uh you know i went to graduate school in madison wisconsin and uh, I got a, um, I was in a Ph.D. program for medical sociology. I wound up getting a master's degree in deviance and criminology It <laughs> informed everything I've done ever since. Uh, um, so uh, I. Uh, so Graham. So I, I came back to New York. I, I, I started working actually for Rolling Stone in Madison. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the reason was because I was the music editor of the Daily Cardinal. My first day on campus, I went to the uh, Daily Cardinal, which was a student newspaper, the official one. And uh, I said, Hey, I'm uh, just starting a PhD program. I'd love to be your music uh, editor. And they said, Okay. And of course, I did <laughs> it so I get free albums. The next day, I sent a letter out on the letterhead, and I got on the list of every company. <laughs> so I was out.
3: No, to work wow. the system.
4: Yeah. So eventually, uh, um, uh, I did a couple of pieces there. Uh, then I, I came back to New York, and uh, I started doing. Uh, um, uh, they gave me started giving me great assignments. One of which we'll talk about later, probably uh, the uh, Berlin, uh, the preview of Berlin, mm. Buh- which has some funny stories attached to it. Uh, uh, but also uh, I was picking up the East Coast tour of, started in the West Coast, of George Harrison's Dark Horse tour. Hmm. And apparently at that point, Jan Wenner had some bug up his ass about Harrison. And so he, um, I think Ben Fung Torres was the uh, guy who on the West Coast, and, and basically put Harrison down for playing all this uh, Indian music and not playing the hits of the Beatles and Ravi Shankar is on, you know, blah blah blah. Sure. So they, they were kind of putting him down for that. So of course I come fresh faced to uh, I think it was uh, DC uh, to pick up the tour and I said, "Hi, I'm from Rolling Stone." And the, <laughs> the, uh, Rolling Stone had just come out that day, and they read the review and they were fucking pissed. <laughs> Bill Graham who was the, the, the manager and the promoter of that tour says to me, kid, don't worry. He says, we're going to go from here. We go to um, Long Island and then we'll come back and we'll come back to the garden. And I'll, by that time I'll smooth everything out. I'll get you an interview with George Harrison. I said, great. Sure. Um, so the day of the show uh, I'm, I'm there backstage and and the bill says, come on, come on, we we'll can do the interview now. So it brings me down to Harrison's dressing room and uh, I go into the dressing room and it's like you know, you can, any kind of type of incense and, and uh, you know, uh, statues and Hindu symbolism and whatever is there. He's got rugs on the floor, you know, and um, he's sitting there cross-legged on the floor and uh, very, very wary of me. So, uh, I figured I got to break the ice. And uh, um, Blood on the Tracks had come out by then. Uh, It had not come out by then, but Blood on the Tracks had been finished by then. And uh, there were acetates circulating in Bob. Uh, I did a piece for Rolling Stone on Blood on the Tracks. Right. uh, A preview piece. So um, I I sit down with Harrison. He's sitting right opposite me. And I said, hey, have you heard Bob's new album? how great is tangled up in blue and he just melts and he goes he starts singing it and oh, we start
3: wow. singing, george singing. starts singing tangled up in blue yeah and we start singing oh. it
2: together uh-huh. <laughs> and this and is I, before the record had come out yeah before oh, the record. wow
4: yeah and he knew every word I and mean, oh, you man. know that, that's was, beautiful that's he, you know was devoted to bob and uh, and so it, you know we, we I, he was very nice we did the piece and uh, I uh, finished I you know, saw the show again, and then I filed my piece. And, you know, in the piece, I basically said, look, you have to give the guy credit for integrity. He's playing the songs that are, and the music that's closest to his heart now. Sure, sure. And so he's not playing the, you know, the, the greatest hits, uh, the Beatles, or Tax Man. Or Tax Man, show. yeah. You know, so uh, um, uh, that was my, you know, the, the, the tack I took. So <laughs> he goes back to England. I wait the 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 two weeks later the the piece comes out and they did it again they they hatched they you know just butchered my piece they made it they put some things in it that were very kind of uh you know not favorable to, to harrison and um, at that time this is before like xerox machines this is when um you had um what was the things where you type and there'd be a copy underneath it?
3: Yes. Like steno something or I know what you're talking about. Like the carbon copy sort of thing.
4: It's it's like a carbon copy. Yeah. So I had the carbon copy. So I took that to a center and they xeroxed that and I sent it to Harris. I just want, you know, with a note saying, look, it wasn't me. I, you know, I, 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 I'm not a snake. I didn't do that. (laughs) And, uh, and then about a few years later, I'm sitting at the uh, bottom line. I forgot who I, I was going to see there. It might have been Gail. It might have been Kinky Friedman. I don't know. Sure. But anyway, uh, all of a sudden I hear, Larry, I look up, it's George Harrison. And he <laughs> says, you know, when I read the article, I uh, I thought you were an asshole. But, uh, <laughs> but then you sent me the piece. And now I know. You're not the asshole. Jan is the asshole. <laughs> so I don't
2: was... think we've ever had a story about him uh, on this podcast that didn't imply something similar. <laughs> about but Jan Winter. I, I, yeah, we don't know. I don't know him, you know, but uh, I'm just saying uh, well, things no. like that seem to follow that name. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean,
4: if you know, if you, uh, if he was still alive, Hunter could tell you a great stories about chasing him around the office with a baseball bat. Boy, like <laughs> but uh, anyway, so that's uh, you know that was my uh, George Harrison.
2: Uh, to the listeners, if you're not already uh, uh, catching on, uh, the scope and scale of your involvement with rock music in the 20th century uh, has been ridiculous.
3: Sort of uh, just connections to any uh, any and all uh, favorites of uh, certainly the two of us on this podcast yeah, for and sure. probably yours as well listeners
4: all right so so getting back to your original question the uh, um, so I was you know friendly with uh, Harrison and Bob by the by the time that uh, um, infidels is about to come out and um, uh, I get a call from uh, Graham and he says uh well, we want to do some videos and he said, and now Bob had met, I had introduced Bob to George Lois because George Lois had this big campaign to get hurricane Carter out of jail. Mm. He had a celebrity campaign. He was getting everybody to do things. Sure. Uh, so, um, so basically uh, at the, after the show at the garden, which was the night of the hurricane uh, and I had given uh, uh, Bob George Lois's book to read. Uh, George Be Careful, and it's a very funny book about his, his whole career. That was his first book. He's written many since then. But uh, so Bob read it, and uh, then after the, uh, the show, there was an after-party in the Felt Forum of the Garden, and uh, and I'm walking around with Bob, and there's George Lois, and I said, Bob, this here's George. And uh, George goes, how you doing, kid? what so he goes, how you doing, kid? That's <laughs> what he called everybody. So, uh, uh, Dylan immediately says, man, I read your book. He said, I couldn't believe how great it was. And, you, and he starts reciting the names of his sisters, you know, and they're all Greek names. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, because George is a famous Greek and maniac. And, and it was like I couldn't believe that Bob had actually—he had a photographic memory or something. It was amazing. pretty smart
3: guy that Bob Dylan. Sharp. sharp.
2: He's a sharp fellow.
4: Yeah, very. <laughs> and, and so, uh, so that's they—they uh, they met uh, there, and uh, so I guess Bob told Graham to call me and said, you know, let's let's set something up. Maybe you and George could do a video for us. Got it. So, uh, so I had the. Uh, acetate before it came out I brought it up to uh, the Madison Avenue to George's office mm. we sat and listened to it and we both immediately said it's got to be joker man that's got to be the video right good choice wow uh, and, <laughs> and and uh, so uh so George like uh good advertising men will do starts doing a storyboard and he uh, so we're sitting there saying well so so how, how are we going to conceive? What's the conception behind the video? And uh, George says, okay, number one, we've got to get the lyrics and we're going to plaster them in your face. <laughs> wow. So, because, you know, Bob's such a great lyricist and people have to know that to begin
2: with. He was the first person to think that about Bob Dylan's, uh, <laughs> like just doing a video for him, which is amazing. It's the most obvious thing. Right. It's so, it's perfect
4: right and then george says
2: and look we,
4: we we want to position bob among all the great artists in history so let's start thinking about you know things that we could put into the video you know and i have a big collection of ant, uh, art from antiquities and, and pre you know and african art and, this sure. and uh so we start basically storyboarding and uh um this takes us maybe about a week, and then uh, in a week I call up Graham and I said, "Come on up." So Bill and Bob come up, show up, and um, we uh, um, they sit and they look at this thing on the wall, and they're just both blown away. They can't believe how cool this is going to be. Oh, mm-hmm. the other the other the other thing is that uh, Graham said uh, that uh, George Lois said, "Okay." So we're going to do the images with the uh, uh, verses in your face. Yeah. But when it comes to the chorus, I want to just shoot Bob Hmm. in a simple white Mm t-shirt, white jacket and have him lip sync the chorus. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, we tell them the whole concept and they love it. Right. And, um, so we uh the first thing we did I guess was um to sh- to do the shoot where Bob will lip sync the course.
3: Where he wouldn't open his goddamn eyes the entire time.
4: That was <laughs> so what what happened was um so Bob is um sitting there and he's you know, he, this I think this is his second video he's ever done at that point. He's not that thrilled with doing videos. You know he he doesn't really uh, know if he can lip sync right. You know, so uh, um, he actually did a very good job. But uh, but the problem was that he like you said he wouldn't open his eyes. He was squinting <laughs> the whole time. And every time we'd finish a take, and I'd come back, Bob would stay at the uh, the stool, and I'd come back and talk to George. And George said, "Get him to open his fucking eyes and open his eyes." So. <laughs> I went back two, three, four times. And, you know, Bob, you think maybe just open your eyes a little bit because, you know, they really want to, you know, capture that, you know, your charisma, blah, blah. And uh, finally, about the fifth time, I said that to Bob Turns to me, goes, I'm trying. <laughs> so, <laughs> so after that, uh, this was the, uh, uh, and this, we use this right at the, the the very end of the video because Bob then does a take of the last chorus and he kind of is squinting Mm -hmm. and then he just looks right at the camera Mm. and opens his eyes and it's like the most
2: intense baby
4: blue but it's like Oh,
3: my God. It's a moment of magic.
2: Yeah, you only see it for a tiny second, and it is the most memorable part of the video in some ways. Yeah. It's, it's and so, it, it's, it's so revelatory. I mean, it really kind of captures him. The concept for the video is just such a um, so simple and so perfect. Uh, George Lois, I think, just, uh, I don't know. It, it seems like it was a very ego-free type of uh, endeavor, this thing, just to be like, how do we make Bob? look as important as he ought to and how do we you know give wow. him a good uh platform like it's it really does honor him just simply and elegantly yeah it sure. seems so
3: simple looking back at it like of course we're just gonna like put bob dylan in the context of all the great artists right the history. great artists one that's what he is that <laughs> makes you know of course that's so natural but at like at, at the same time like like it, it seen like it's it's such a brilliant stroke of just like simple genius i think to put that together like that it right you guys so, did a good job.
2: Yeah, you did. You did great. <laughs> you did good work. It's, it's the, yeah. one of the best music videos of all time. Well,
4: uh, yeah. Well. That, so the story continues. So. So then uh, we uh, we put together the, um, you know, the, the whole clip, and George sends it out. He sends it out to Sony because they're paying for it, and he sends it out to Bill, and Bob, and. I guess Bob was in town, maybe still in town, or but anyway, he was in town, and I get a phone call from him, and he says, uh, uh, I, I, "I got a question about the video. Uh, let's." Oh, uh, no, it was. Uh, wait a minute. so We met before the video, the night of the, the night before we were going to shoot the video. He says, "Meet me in Chinatown," <laughs> and, and it gives me an address. And him and Gary Schaffner, who was his road manager at the time, so I walk into this place, and I know a lot of places in Chinatown. I've never been in this place. It's all Chinese people, <laughs> except for this Bob in his hoodie and, oh his dog and, <laughs> and Gary. And, and Bob is like a, a little, he's a little nervous about going to the, the shoot the next day. And he says he should, it's going to be good, you know. And I said, don't worry, George is such a genius. And he, you know, George is one of the all-time greats in Madison Avenue. So uh, we shoot the thing. And then I get a call, I guess, from Bob. And Bob said, uh, you know, video is good, but I don't like the part with me. <laughs> he says why don't you just uh come out to malibu and we'll take a little handheld camera and we'll go on the beach and you can just shoot me <laughs>
3: <laughs> chorus son of a
4: bitch so so i call up short and i said listen i just gotta call for bob and he wants he doesn't like the way he was shot wearing all the whites and he didn't like me his the lip syncing. He wants me to go out there, <laughs> and take a handheld camera. And George stops me and he goes, Fuck him. <laughs> Fuck him. He says, My client is Sony, not Bob Dylan. <laughs> Sony loves him. That's all I care about. I'm not changing an inch of that video. And uh okay, so the video uh so Bob goes on tour uh, and he's in Europe mm-hmm. and video breaks and uh, it got immediately, it got a great play. Well, it got some play on MTV, but they, they kind of, you know, they gave it a big premiere, but then they never played it because they put it in like sub lunar rotation because it was like uh, so long.
3: Yeah, sort of a hard one to fit into the, uh, the afternoon yeah. schedule
4: the attention span of the MTV audience. But there was another thing called, I think, Friday Night Videos or something. Mm -hmm. They went crazy with it. And Mm -hmm. they named it the best video ever. And uh, the the, uh, LA uh, Times said it was the greatest video ever made. And it was, so it's getting these rave reviews. Uh, And uh, so I decide, you know, I'm gonna take a vacation uh, at that point, I was the uh, editor of um, uh, High Times magazine. Mm. And <laughs> I'm to take a vacation. And But I really was sick of it. I really wanted to get out of it because uh, um, High Times, you know, I was trying to make it take the drugs out and make it a countercultural magazine. I had Ginsburg, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I had Kerouac. I'm not Kerouac, I had uh, Burroughs, Paul Krasner. I had no budget. So I was basically trading them uh, ad space, you know, for to, to write, and you know they didn't care; they were happy to do it. Sure. So, um, so, so then, uh, um, I, but I really wanted to get out of uh, high times. So I go out to uh, uh, meet the tour. I went. I met the tour in France, and then after France, the next date was. Uh, um, um, England, Wembley.
3: So the 84 tour with Bob in Europe with like um, uh, Mick and stuff, you were on that tour with them. Right, right. Wow. And,
4: and well, I was out for a few dates. Sure. And, and uh, um, so I, I, I go, uh, I get to France, I check into my hotel, and I go right to the show, and uh, they usher me backstage. And Bob is greeting his guests, and they set up a Winnebago, and he's basically standing on the, you know, looking at, <laughs> looking out the window and greeting his guests from inside the Winnebago. The <laughs> like great, great picture on my Instagram uh, of uh, um, Bob and me that's uh, Ken Reagan took. And it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's really a revelatory picture. He's given me a, very fond look. It was very, it was almost homoerotic. (laughs) uh, um, So he goes, how you doing, man? I said, you're not going to believe this. He says, what? I said, Joker Man got reviewed by the LA Times as the greatest video ever. It's in in tremendous rotation uh, on the Friday night videos. And it's a huge hit. And Bob, looks at me and goes well either I'm crazy or the world's crazy <laughs> <laughs> and I said well
2: <laughs>
4: anyway so that was uh, the uh, and then later apparently Bob ran into George Lois years later uh, on Fifth Avenue and uh, Bob told George Lewis how much he really
3: loved the video. (laughs) Obviously, yeah, of course he ended up loving the video, you know, just probably three weeks after he fucking heard that story from you and how everyone's talking about it's the greatest music video of all time.
2: (laughs) Bob is crazy, I think, when it comes to knowing what type of thing like that is good. I mean, he has his uh, handle on the whole uh, being an amazing writer uh, always and an incredible... uh, man with a song but uh when it comes to stuff like album covers music videos uh anything like that it's not necessarily it's a little shakier his, his wheelhouse yeah
4: well i mean look i'm just uh, the the whole episode i had with him with uh blind willie McTell
3: because that originally were you trying to get him to put the song on the record
4: yeah oh, yeah i mean like because uh, again so this was uh I'm trying to remember whether it was the uh, the actual, infidels recordings or or maybe they were going to try it again on the next album. Hmm. Again, Bill Graham was involved, and uh, and Bob said, you know, come to the studio and listen to some of the stuff. And, uh, they they want to. So, so I was in the studio for a few times listening to them record, and then they uh, Bob said, come in out. We want to play you the whole album. Sure. is a sequence and everything. So I'm sitting there listening. I'm listening, you know, one song after another. And it's really great. And then it's over. And then I said, uh, what happened to Bob, uh, Blind Willie McDowell? Mm. And he goes, well, you know, uh, and I said, what are you, crazy? This is one of the greatest songs you ever wrote. How could you not put Blind Willie McTell? And I'm really getting passionate about this. And Bob says, oh, Ratzel, calm down, man. It's, you know, it's only an album. I've got like 25 of them. <laughs> but he's not always
2: the best judge of his own work. That's,
3: that's, such, a, that's such a Bob quote. I can completely see him saying that.
2: <laughs> this is so surreal because I feel like I'm getting – like, I'm finding out through you what would happen if Ian or I were sent back in time to try <laughs> right, to do exactly. everything we would do if we were in Bob's presence through these pivotal moments. And it turns out nothing would have changed. Yeah, you were, have there, you were there. You were there in our
3: stead and we're still in this the future. Yeah, you in. did
2: every you said everything we would have tried to say. You, <laughs> you, uh, you were there. To, and, and well, I'm sure it's because of you that certain things that. Are incredible did happen. I mean, who knows? Maybe it was just you being on the set that made him decide. I'll I'll open my eyes. I'll open my eyes three for Three seconds. <laughs> yeah. I'll do it just because Ratsa's here.
1: Seeing the on
0: the
4: Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that I, I found, you know, when I was on the Rolling Thunder tour was uh, that, uh, uh, and, and I'll give you an example of later uh, how this plays out. But, you know, Bob basically is a shy guy, number one. He's tremendously funny. He's got a great, great sardonic black sense of humor. And uh, um and he also just wants to be treated like a normal person. Mm. So, you know, my, uh, you know, I, I, I don't even, I don't even think it was a strategy, but, you know, just my, you know, the way I, you know, would kind of conduct my business in real life was like, you know, uh, I remember Louis Kemp was giving me problems on the tour. And, uh, you know, it was, Louis was his fishmonger friend bob and, and said well if you could sell fish you could sell tickets <laughs> so you're gonna you're, you're gonna promote this rolling thunder tour and uh and he you know he's giving me a hard time bob said you oh, know look i want you to do it you know you and then when i get there louis kept saying oh no you can't stay at the same hotel with them and you you know and i knew half the people were friends of mine from the beginning you know so it was like you know so you know one time Louis really gave me a hard time, and I started complaining to bob and uh and I said, you know, you guys i mean I said, you know you I said something like you you midwestern Jews I mean you're just you know, assimilationist man <laughs> you're not real Jews like us New York Jews <laughs> and he goes, bob goes, uh well, let's see uh who are your favorites?" Me, Leonard Cohn,
2: Kiki Friedman, none of
0: them are New York Jews.
4: <laughs>
2: wow. But well, so, he, uh, he really had that one in his back pocket, didn't
4: he? <laughs> well, he, he's so quick. and he's, so 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 on that tour, on that tour, at one point Sarah comes, and uh, so Sarah immediately gets put into the Ronaldo and Clara film. And uh, uh and then uh, I was, uh, uh, by that time, I was I was established to the point where I'd quit Rolling Stone because there were, you know, uh, if you watch the Scorsese film, it tells why. Because, you know, they were saying, oh, how much money are they are making now? They're doing big concerts. They've raised the price of the tickets. And I said, what is this, fucking Forbes magazine? This is the most important cultural event, you know, in the last 50 years, whatever. And uh, so... Um, so Sarah comes on and uh and now I'm working I'm going to write the book and I'm working with the film crew because they always loved whatever I was doing they they came to bat for me you know uh The
2: Ronaldo uh, and Clara uh film crew you mean Yes yeah because uh, you
4: know whenever like I would bring people for them to interview like you know because I was hanging around with the kids on, outside the street and this and that so they were very appreciative and they said to Bob, you know, Ratso is a great resource. Let's, you know, you know, give him whatever he wants. And and that's the beginning of, uh, uh, <laughs> the beginning of uh, uh, Ronaldo and Clara is the scene where I'm in the screaming at the, at the, uh, in, a, in a, in a, in a hotel where the, everybody was staying mm-hmm. And Bob and Johnny Mitchell come in and McGuinn, and um, and I'm and and Bob goes, what's the matter, Etso? Because I was and I said, they're jerking me off here. They're jerking me off. There. You know, they're not. They want. I can't get a room. I'm I don't have a, a, a an expense account anymore. I don't, you know, I was telling all this. You know, and I just want to finish this book. This is so historic. And Bob says, calm down, man. Calm down. And, uh, and McGuinn says, you want to value him? I said, no, no. And Bob goes, well, what does you need? And I said, well, I need uh, uh, a room. Bob says to Imhoff, uh, I think it was, because I, I don't think Louis was, but Bob says to Emhoff, the other promoter, okay, get him a room. What else you need? I said, I don't have my expense again anymore. Uh, I said, so I need per diem. So, <laughs> so Bob says, okay, we'll get you that. What else? And he's like two inches from me. And i am said, and I need access. <laughs> and that was the beginning of Ronaldo Clara. And years later, uh, Howard Alk, who's you know, the co director with Bob, mm-hmm. uh, I saw him at a concert in New Jersey. And backstage, he says, You know, I never told you this, but he says, At one point, we were going to call Ronaldo Clara access. <laughs>
3: What'd you, th- what'd you think of Ronaldo and Clara, the finished, uh, the finished product, right? So, cause it's, uh, I know. loved
4: it. I mean, you know, I, you know,
2: if you're a Dylan fan, you're going to love it. I mean, you know,
3: there's I, a, there's I, a lot, I, lot there.
2: Was <laughs> being there, uh, does it, do you feel like it really influences how you view the film or have you had experiences with people, you know, who, who weren't there and it, and you had differing opinions on it or,
4: Well, I'll tell you another story about it. So, uh, and this is something that Howard told me. So this is what, when when I finished my book on the role of Bob Dylan, and uh, and this was the, uh, they were just about to start the second leg of the Rolling Thunder Review. But I finished the book and Bob and Howard were still out in Malibu. They were actually working on cutting Ronaldo and Clara. Right. So I sent, uh, I sent two copies of the manuscript out. I sent one to Bob and Howard, and I sent one to Joni Mitchell. I got close with Joni on that mm. tour. And um, so uh, I come home one night, a couple of days later, and it's a, a, a thing on my answer machine, it's Howard Ork. And he goes, Ratso, you did it, man i We didn't know if you could, <laughs> we didn't know if it'd be any good, but he says you really did it. It was fantastic. Mm. I read it in one night, Bob read it in one night, and we loved it. Then, when I saw Howard years later, he said to me, You know well, i- ne- I never told you this, but when when we got your manuscript and we read the book, Bob said... We got to scrap this, and we have to recut the whole film. So in oh, some wow. ways, in some ways, I'm responsible.
3: So Renan and Claire is your oh fault. You're saying you're yeah. responsible. <laughs> my, my fault. It was a three and the three. The original half version
2: might have been you know uh, 90 minutes and had a, a snappy plot with a, a Hollywood <laughs> ending. just
3: any sort of understandable uh, character arc.
2: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Anyway, well, thank you for uh, uh, your service. Yeah, right. (laughs) Getting getting back to
4: uh, the story with Sarah is by this time I'm I'm with the film crew and uh, um, Bob and Sarah were shooting a scene. It was, uh, I guess it was uh, somewhere in Western Massachusetts, maybe, Hmm. because we were going to have Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, no, no, I think it was Vermont. Uh, We're going to have a Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, that night. So uh, um, anyway, so they finished the scene. And, you know, we're packing up and we're getting ready to go into the car. And, uh, and I said, uh, Hey, Bob, and Sarah's standing next to us. And I said, Hey, I got a question for you. You know, uh, in Sad I Lady of Little Lens, when you in the chorus, when you say my warehouse eyes, my Arabian drums. Mm, is eyes a verb or is it disparate images? <laughs> and, is and a Sarah bird? goes, "Yeah, I always want to know that." <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and Bob goes, "Stop busting my <laughs> <He wouldn't> answer. <laughs> but, but you know, that's that's the kind of you know. I mean, you you, you know, he just like to be treated like a normal human being. And and uh, here's another example. So uh, there's a, a famous actor, who I don't want to reveal his name, but uh, uh, you know him instantly. Uh, and he was in a movie with me. This'll narrow it down actually. <laughs> he was in a movie with me that uh, my friend, uh, Dan Adams was shooting in Luxembourg. And uh, Dan wanted me to come out and play a, uh, this is my first like real movie role. And he wanted me to play uh, an alcoholic, cynical alcohol journalist, which was a stretch for me, but, you know, I managed to do it. <laughs> you don't it. seem so silly. So, uh, so, So we, we finished shooting. And then um, me and this other guy, and, and, and I knew he's a, a Dylan fan, and I get a um, an email or something, or a call, from, I guess it was an email from uh, uh, my accountant, who was Bob's accountant. I was like, my accountant Marty Feldman had Bob Neil Diamond, you know all these George, George Harrison. I think all these superstars, and I was a charity case. I mean, he just you know, <laughs> uh, you know we we met on a tour and we dug each other. So you know, so I was his account. So he calls me. He says Bob's in uh, uh, Germany. You should come to you know to the to the tour. I said. Oh, cool. Where, where was he? Well, he's playing in Frankfurt uh, in two days or something. So I said, great. And I go to my friend, the actor, who's a big Dylan fan. And I said, hey, do you want to you know, we'll rent a car. We finish. We wrapped our part in the movie. Let's go to Frankfurt. And, uh, and then we'll drive back and uh, we'll see Bob. And he says, can I bring my daughter? I said, sure. So um, you know, we drive into, uh, we drive from Luxembourg to Frankfurt and, you know, right to the venue and um, uh, we watch the show. And then afterwards I go backstage and, um, and we're, uh, 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 and Bob is, you know, gives me a big greeting, uh, you know, hey, how you doing? right? And I said, Bob, this is, you know, I introduced the guy. Mm. I said, this is Bob. And Bob goes, "How you doing?" And this famous actor, a world famous actor, says, oh, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna." He couldn't fucking get the words out. He was so, <laughs> you know, beyond thrilled to meet Bob. And that, you know, t- I mean, he gets so uncomfortable when something like that happens. Mm. So you
3: know, it was. Uh, and Bob, and if, meanwhile, Bob is just your old buddy, your old pal. That uh, you. <laughs> yeah, been, what was you've that? Was there ever a
2: moment for you like that? Was Was there ever a, th- a time, maybe even earlier on, where you were just kind of like, "I'm uh, just sort of hanging out with Bob Dylan a lot these days. So, I mean, <laughs> hanging out with Bob Dylan very much. Did you ever uh, sort of did that? Well, stir you or shock you for a minute?
4: You know. Looking back now on all the stuff, you know, Bob, Leonard, Joni, I mean, it's like, you know, I feel like I've been incredibly blessed, you know, of course, with with this kind of, you know, the experiences. But, you know, at the time, I mean, I was so kind of, you know, in the moment that, you know, no, I I don't, you know, I I don't think so. I, I was more interested in and the same thing with Leonard with the first piece I did, that's how Leonard and I got so friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, for the new skin for the Old Ceremony tour. And, uh, you know, I was covering for Rolling Stone two nights at the bottom line. And, you know, we bonded because it was two Jewish workaholics. Yeah. And, and <laughs> you know, and, and basically, um, you know, we, we recognized that in each other, that we, you know, we were really kind of perfectionists and we just wanted to, you know, he wanted to get the song right, and I wanted to get the articles right. I
2: can't relate.
4: (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, but... uh, I I mean,
2: it seems to me that that's, you know, that's why you were there. That's why you got to be so friendly with these people, is because I'm sure there were so many people who were starstruck and too uh, uh, outside the situation to really feel like they were there with these people as as people as fellow. Uh Artists or uh, fellow, fellow Jews or whatever the case may be.
3: Yeah, I mean, you you said it yourself, right? Like Bob just wants to feel like a, a normal person. You see Bob's interaction with so many different, you know, other journalists and and yeah. press people, like literally on tape, yeah, right? They're and the freak show, or like exactly. Those are yeah. the
2: weird people, really. Like he bought, you
3: know, so so a presence, you know, just like a normal guy who would treat him like a normal guy must have felt so sort of refreshing and and like comfortable to him camp yeah. leader of the low
0: lands where the prophet sees that no man comes now
3: Um, we are technically a Lou Reed and John Cale and Velvet <laughs> yeah, Underground podcast now. Um, so, so on that note, and I think you mentioned this earlier, um, you, you did call, and I didn't realize this until I started doing a little bit of research, you know, uh, to get in, you know, to get in the right headspace for this conversation. You, you were the one who called Berlin, the Sergeant Pepper of the seventies. Wait, that was
2: you? <laughs> yeah.
3: And Do you think- still
2: stand by it. <laughs>
4: Well, uh, yes, of course, because (laughs) you know. All right, now (laughs) here's the story. So, give uh, it to us. So, I uh, um, I got the assignment from Rolling Stone to do a preview of Berlin, Mm. and uh, um, so uh, I get I go to the studio, and uh, um, I don't know if Lou was there when I was listening to it. But uh, um, you know, Ezra certainly was there. He was
3: playing sure. for
4: me, and um, and it blew me away. I thought it was such a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. So uh, I wrote a rave uh, preview of it in Rolling Stone, where I said the the quote in context is that uh, that um, if the Beatles were you know caught the. The, the gestalt of, you know, of, of uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, 60s. 60s. Love, peace, mm-hmm. love, and understanding, Sergeant Pepper, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Lou has done the same yeah. thing for the 70s, mm-hmm. except it's not you know, peace, love, and understanding, this is about you know, a, 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 a couple who's uh, beating the shit out of each other, you know, losing their kids, and, you know, and doing horrible drug abuse, whatever. Uh, so I said, you know, you know, he, he, you know, he's really captured what the 70s is about, is, uh, you know, slowly becoming. Sure. And uh, um, so, of course, mm. uh, um, Roland, uh, so uh, RCA, then decides
2: to do this big ad campaign, right? And that's so, all
3: you see. I, I just the the Sergeant Pepper of the seventies. All <laughs> due
2: respect. I mean, i think that you know, not knowing that you wrote that, uh I think seeing it on one of these RCA ad posters makes right. you. I think we we read that as just like, oh, this is just some dog shit that somebody was just like, oh, it's like a Sergeant Pepper's because it's got songs with, with characters in them, but, uh, you obviously, I mean, uh, right, well, that the point you were making is, you know, a really astute and, and right interesting and, and, one and, and, that I think is absolutely true about. Yeah. And movie. if you read it in, if you read
4: the article in context, but of course yeah. what they're doing is they're doing a lurid poster yeah. and it's, uh, it's a, a guy and a, his, his girlfriend, um, Naked from the waist up, Mm -hmm. and they're hugging each other, you know. And there's a star on the left hand star, and a star on the right hand. And the left hand says, "Sergeant Pepper will be uh, Berlin will be the Sergeant Pepper, Sloman Rolling Stone." (laughs) So it comes out, and they plaster this on buses in every subway stop, all over the city. Right. Well, years later, uh, well, no, so immediately. Um, I find out that Lou is really pissed off and he's blaming me for the album. Oh, my
3: God. And I heard this
4: from uh, Hal Wilner, my dear departed great friend Hal Wilner, who was very close with Lou, of course. And Hal said, well, the problem was not uh, uh, that, you know, you said it was a... he said, the problem really was compounded because you said it was the Sergeant Pepper of the uh, the 70s and Lou hates Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's what really pissed him off. But then later when I was working with Kale uh, and you know, writing lyrics with Kale, I, and then Lou really softened up. And, that
2: was in uh, When did you start working with Kale and, and how did you meet him? So I met Kale... Um, he came to one of Kinky's shows at the Lone Star.
4: Kinky had a, uh, Kinky Friedman. Kinky had a residency at the Lone Star. And, you know, all these, you know, famous people like Keith Richards came one night and I sat next to Keith all night and he was just the sweetest, nicest guy you could imagine. That's and, nice. you see. know, um, uh, Mickey Mantle came one night.
3: Mickey uh, Mantle? Yeah. Yeah, Yo, he's great. Mickey Mantle, wow. Wow. Yeah. Bill, Clinton, well, oh boy, you okay. know, you're running quite some company, right? So. Bill Clinton came one night. Okay, we didn't even know who
4: he was, and because uh, uh, he was uh, in town, he was just some. What year was this? This was that must 84? have been eighty-three, or something like
3: that. Yeah, Arkansas a governor. Governor.
4: A governor of Arkansas, but he made that big speech at the Democratic convention. It was mm. so he came to see Kiki, uh, and you know he was a really. Uh, Tremendously,
2: uh, but nice John Cale and and Bill Clinton being in the same <laughs> and room. Mickey Mantle, but well, it wasn't the same night. But okay, they,
3: uh, they all came through the same room.
2: I Kale, may choose uh, to think that it sort of maybe could have been, it, right. you
3: know, a spiritual uh, the spiritual they right. occupied the same room. Right.
4: So anyway, so so uh, um, so Cale comes, and this is right right after the Rolling Thunder tour. So this is like seventy and. Uh, uh, I had started writing lyrics for the first time, well, I'll, I'll backtrack a little of that. It's the first time I really was writing new lyrics, but before that, Thule Kufferberg, uh, the Fugs, they were, you know, there was Bob and there was the Fugs and both of them were my mentors growing up in Queens and, uh, you know, and escaping to the city and, uh, uh, like I saw the Fugs at the Players Theater. And, you know, the, it was they're so revolutionary what they were doing. It was a bunch of basically beatniks, poets, who were like realizing that rock and roll was a way to capture the minds of young people. And it was all about sex, drugs, rock and roll, and fuck Vietnam. So, uh, it, it you know, Thule Kofferberg was, you know, a hero. So, uh, um so Thule, uh, at one point, moved into Soho, right near where I live, and um, he said, uh, listen, I'm putting out a book of these um, uh, song uh, song parodies, and he says, you know, do you want to do, you know, do something like that? And I said, yeah, you know, let me think about it. I think it's called uh, Listen to the Mockingbird, and I At that time, uh, there was this Indian guru, this little fat kid, uh, Guru Maharaji, who, uh, Rennie Davis, one of the Chicago 7, guys who were indicted with Matt and Jerry. Mm -hmm. Rennie Davis, at the end of, you know, all this radicalism, became a devotee of this fat guru. (laughs) Mm -hmm. A kid? Uh, Yes, he was like 16 years years old. Guru Maharaji. So I wrote a song called, you know, uh, Guru Maharaji. He really wants you you and me. He may be fat, but he's fun. <laughs> and he's a God's song, chosen son or whatever. Sounds
3: like, sounds like a hit. So I, I wrote
4: that for Thule. And then, uh, uh, so when I, the Dylan tour, um, so at one point when I was working for the, uh, doing kind of advanced work, for the uh, um, film crew, I get a call from Bob. He says they were up in Buffalo, I think. He says we're going to come down to Boston, but we want to get we want to do a scene with a bunch of hookers or prostitutes. You think you can, uh, you know, go to in Boston? There's a place called the Combat Zone, which is where the their time version of CD version of Times Square. So, uh, so I spent two nights in the Combat Zone hanging out with all, every stripper, all the owners of strip clubs, Hell all yeah. the hook The hookers actually met at Howard Johnson's that was open 24 hours. <laughs> they would actually barricade the bathrooms so that the hookers could <laughs> tricks and give them blowjobs in the bathroom. So, um, so I was... Uh, uh, and then when they got to Boston, Bob says, ah, I think we're not going to do that scene. So I had all this material. So I said, oh, fuck, I'm going to write a, a, a song about this called Combat Zone. So I actually wrote this long, like 15 verse song about the Combat Zone and all the different people, the denizens I met and the girls and, the, you know, you when know, using their real names. And, uh, and I remember we were on a train from Toronto to Montreal when uh, I said to Bob... Hey, I, I'm working on a song. He goes, let me see it. And I gave him the lyrics to look at. And he goes, hey, this is good. This reminds me of just like Tom Thumb's blues. <laughs> so that's all I needed to hear. Whoa. <laughs> and I actually got McGuinn to do a rudimentary melody. And when the tour was over, we went up Bob, on Bob Fass's show on WBAI to listen supported hip station in New York. And uh, we performed it a few times. So that was my first,
2: you know, uh, uh, really dabbling in, in lyrics. So you just fell into it. And then with, I mean, I fell into is ungenerous because really it's just that you had an act for it that that just came out and I right. guess was just noticed. And, and so you meet John. How did that come about that you started writing with him?
4: Okay, because, but, well, before that, so when I got back to New York, I was friendly with Liz Derringer, Rick Derringer's wife. So,
3: okay. <laughs> so she says
4: she, she used to call me Schmatzo instead of Ratzo. She goes, Schmatzo, why don't you uh, come by the house and I'll introduce you to Rick? He's always looking for somebody to because he doesn't write lyrics, you know. So he says, why don't you start working with him?
2: Where did she hear that you wrote lyrics?
4: <laughs> oh no, I I told her.
2: Okay, hold on. Because so, now Bob Dylan said that you're a good lyricist. I That's all you, anyone really needs. I think that's, yeah,
3: you're right. you're, so, you're dining out on that for life if you get that from Bob.
2: That's more than that's more than anyone ever gets. You are a good lyricist. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also wrote the warm piece of rock and roll. That was another. Great <laughs> quote. I meant it. I, I mean it. You're a good great lyricist. Great quote that Bob gave me. Anyway,
4: so um so we actually, if you go to Spotify, because. Uh, um, uh, eventually, I wound up—it's a long story—but I wound up recording my own album, and it came out in uh, uh, right before the pandemic.
3: Yeah, it came out recently, right?
4: Uh, no, before the pandemic. Right. It's called uh, "Stubborn Heart," uh, and it's just uh, a, a Ratso, just like you know, like Cher or Madonna, just you know, Ratso. So uh, <laughs> you can actually go to my Spotify page. There's a, a whole um, playlist of songs I wrote with Kale and, yeah, with, well, and Rick Derringer. Huh. So, so what would, so what happened was uh, so I started working with Derringer, and then Kale came to the uh, Bottom Line to uh, the, the, uh, not the Bottom line, the Lone Star Cafe, and uh, and you know he was just you know a really great friendly guy. You know, he's a fan of Kinky's. And, uh, and then uh, uh, he said, uh, why don't we write some songs together? And, um, and it was like, it started out, you know, we worked in every conceivable way you could do songs. Like you could, uh, um, he would give me lyrics. He would give me music that needed lyrics. Mm. He'd give, I'd give him lyrics that needed music. Or we'd sit in a room together many times after hanging out at Mary Lou's, which was this uh, um, bar in the in Greenwich Village, and we get, you know, completely drunk and uh, uh, s- s- fucked up on the various substances. And, uh, <laughs> and we'd come back to my place and we'd just sit down and start writing. And that's, that's the way we wrote that song that's on the... Uh, uh, the soundtrack for a Sid and Nancy movie. That song wasn't in the movie; it was too late. Mm. But we wrote a, an actual homage of sorts to uh, that annoying Nancy spongeon. <laughs> and it was called she, "She." She never took no for an answer. <laughs> so if you get the soundtrack album, you'll hear this uh, uh, thing that we wrote in my living room uh, together. So anyway, uh, working
2: with him was
4: great, and
2: um, and then that, uh, know, mean, that's just so wonderful. I I just can't get over the just the the feeling you must have had, I guess, of just meeting these people. And I don't know, it seems so free flowing this whole relationship you had with him. It's just like uh, it just yeah. led into working on an actual record at some point, but uh, it, yeah. it seems like you just were kind of a, uh, a friend and that's really how you got in a lot of these situations. And
4: Well, that's true. I mean, I, you know, with Leonard, certainly, I got friendly with Leonard. You know, at, we
2: recognized uh, after
4: the show and then we stayed in touch and Leonard is such a world-class mensch. He's the nicest guy you could imagine. So, you know, I would call Leonard and say, hey, Leonard, I'm, I'm, at this point, I was the editor of uh, National Lampoon and uh you've
3: been in every magazine this, like in the done, second half of the 20th it's, century
2: it's so hard for me to introduce you at first because it's just like i don't even know where to begin like you, there's every there's every five seconds there's something that you did that would have been someone else's like whole thing <laughs>
3: every magazine and every rock and roll star oh, wrote, uh, with John Cale, like,
2: <laughs> wrote with Leonard Cohen was like on Bob Dylan's tour. A yeah. lot of people hang their hat on just one of those. And you're just like, uh, anyways, so, so, so we went to, uh,
4: we got, we've got friendly. I, I, I call Leonard up for example, because every year uh, I would go up to uh, Montreal for the uh, just, just Paul here, just for La- laughs festival, comedy festival. And I'd hang out with Gilbert Gottfried and Sam
2: Kinnis. Uh, alright I mean, you know. Yeah.
4: So uh, um, at one point I called up Leonard. I said, I'm coming up to Montreal. And Leonard said, well, I won't be here, but why don't you stay at my house? He says, <laughs> you know, I'll just have a, you know, a, a, his friend had the keys. He says, you know, you could just stay at my
2: house. That is mensch behavior, if I've ever yeah, heard it. it. Just, yeah.
4: He's just such a great guy. And, and so... That's how I was able to uh, um, when when the Rolling Thunder tour came to Montreal, I was able to uh, um, basically uh, uh, get Leonard to um, (laughs) and and this was funny because Bob was really okay. Bob really wanted Leonard to come and to perform because you know Rolling Thunder was very loosey-goosey kind of thing and wherever we went to like for example we were uh, I forget what early on in Connecticut I think and Joni Mitchell happened to be there and she came on and sang and she loved it so much she just cancelled all her gigs and stayed like you know with the tour for the rest of the tour and in, in Toronto right before Montreal Gordon Lightfoot lives in Toronto so Gordon Lightfoot came and there was a slot and Gordon did his thing. And then afterwards we hung out at Gordon's house. So, um, so when we came to Montreal and Bob knew I was friendly with Leonard, he said, uh, uh you got to get in touch with Leonard. and have to, So I said, okay. And, and I, I saw him the day before the concert in the hotel lobby, he was shopping and I was walking around the lobby and, um, and Bob said, uh, did you call Leonard? I said, uh, not yet. He goes, let's call him now. <laughs> and he marched me over to a uh, pay phone, you know, pay telephone. And I dial up Leonard, and um, Bob is literally at my sleeve, tugging at my sleeve. You know, and, I, and I said, uh, hey, Leonard, it's, it's Larry. Uh, I'm in town with uh, Bob in the Rolling Thunder Review." And, and uh how you doing? And I know right away Leonard's answer is gonna be can't complain. Because that's what Leonard would always say. Well, can't complain. So meanwhile, Bob is going, invite him to come, invite him to come. So finally I said, Hold on. And I give Bob the phone. And Bob goes, Hey Leonard, and uh how you doing? And I you know, I know what Leonard's gonna say, right? And then Bob Listens for a while and he goes, "Well, I can, but I won't." <laughs> oh my God. And then he said you know, uh, Leonard. I mean, you got to come. You got to come see the show. It's fantastic, and we'd love for you to sing a song. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to have Ratso come pick you up, and, uh, uh, and then he kissed me back the phone, and Leonard says, "Great, you know." So we we make a, a, an arrangement to that I'm going to pick him up in a cab. The next night, the night of the show, so uh, that happens to be two days, I think, after Sarah came on the tour. So now Sarah is on the tour. Bob is putting her in the film, and uh, and I, you know. Got friendly with Sarah the same way. Like at one point Sarah says, I can't believe I'm friendly with a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> She's never talked to a journalist in her life. And meanwhile, there's all this incredible stuff in the book, you know, with my interactions with Sarah. Anyway, so uh so we uh so, so I so I would take Sarah. She doesn't want to go early to the show, so she'll go a little bit late, and I would just pick her up in a cab and go so uh so sarah and i are in the cab we we uh go to leonard's house about modest little house uh right uh, you know like a block away from schwartz's smoked meat
2: sandwich. oh an inc- incredible sandwich it's story. great, it's, it's, great pro- it's one of the best sandwiches in the world
4: i know better than any
2: kind of new york restaurant. it's true it's a it's hard to explain why it's different than corned beef anyway i'll uh anyway, yeah.
4: So I, I say to Sarah, wait here, I'm going to go get Leonard and his guests. So I start walking to the um, the house and I hear this cacophony of sounds and weird instruments and juice harps and uh, bongos and, uh, you know, all kinds of crazy shit. And they're singing French songs at the top of their lungs, dancing, or I can hear the, the dancing around the house. So I knock on the door. They can't hear me. I open the door, and there they are, and there's six empty bottles of wine, and everybody's plastered. And, uh, and you know, they're dancing. They, they don't even stop dancing and singing. And I said, Leonard, uh, you know, we got to go, Leonard. Come on, we got to go. We don't miss the show. And he goes, look, Larry, you're this is the best music you'll ever hear in your life. (laughs) And uh, and, all right, but come on, we got to, seriously, we got to go. So uh, uh, so Leonard and about three of his friends pile out and we all squeeze into the cab and we all go to um, uh, the backstage uh, area. And I lead them in. First person we see is Joni Mitchell. Joni, you know, is an ex-lover and dear friend of Leonard's. And Joni comes running up, Leonard you know, oh, Joni, and they you know, hug each other. And, uh, and then Bob comes running up. And Bob goes, oh, Leonard, I'm glad you made it. Oh, it's fantastic. You think you're gonna do a song? And Leonard goes, well, you know, he says, uh, I disdain the obvious support. So I think what I'm going to do is just sit in my seat and cheer you guys on. (laughs) (laughs) So we get to, uh, so Leonard's sitting there and I'm sitting next to him and uh, we get to the point in the show where it's, you know, the the guest slot and Bob, instead of uh, Bob is going to do ISIS. And
2: so we, you know, they, Bob is about to do for just for the listeners at home. Bob is about to do the Rolling Thunder review rendition of ISIS, one of the most incredible live performances of right. all time. Legendary.
4: Right. And and uh and and so Bob starts, uh, if you listen to the bootlegs of that concert, Bob starts singing it. Bob starts, uh, the, the band starts playing, and Bob says, We're gonna send this out to Leonard. I hope he's still
3: here. Yes, yeah, that's yes. it's on sidetracks. I think if you listen to right. the ISIS on sidetracks, you can right. hear that it's it's from Montreal.
0: There's a song about marriage. This is called ISIS.
2: Was he still there?
4: Yeah, he was sitting right next to me. Good,
2: good. I'm, <laughs> we, you know how many like weird nerds can now breathe a sigh of relief like for knowing that he actually <laughs> witnessed that? So many people, every time they've ever listened to that recording, go like, oh, gee, I wonder if Leonard Cohen left. But now we can all just relax. Yeah, and the next day,
4: we had a great time. Me, Joni, and McGuinn went to uh, hang out with Leonard. Uh, and Leonard uh, got brought some uh uh barbecue spare ribs in and we had a little feast and Leonard started reciting songs that would become uh, songs i think that were on uh, the uh recent songs album mm. but it was just it, at this point it was just you it know the poetry
2: I, was there some kind of drug that made hangovers just not happen in in this era <laughs>
4: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I don't
2: know. Well, we were younger, you know. I mean, yeah. you know, but damn,
3: it's just the good vibes and friendship <laughs> and uh, and uh, camaraderie that everyone. I
2: guess, well, I guess if you've got those type of songs in you, they're they're, they're going to come out one way or another. Yeah, but I, it was really great, and you know, Leonard uh,
4: took us upstairs, and so, so we could we couldn't meet them because they were in their cribs sleeping. But he introduced. He says, "This is my daughter, Lorca, uh, and this is my son, Adam." Incredible. And years later, when I hadn't seen Adam since then, but I saw him at the uh, the show that he co-produced with Hal Wilner, uh, the the, the uh, one year memorial of Leonard's death mm-hmm. at the uh, the New Montreal Forum and uh, Bell Center, whatever they call it, and. Uh, and I, I was backstage and I said to Adam, So, you know, Adam, the last time I saw him, you, you were in your crib and Leonard was introducing me, Joni Mitchell, and Roger McGuinn to you, but you were sleeping. And he just looks at me and smiles and gave me a big hug. I mean, you, you know, it was really nice.
3: That's beautiful. I
4: married
0: Isis on the
4: fifth day of May,
0: but I could not hold on. Cause I'm not alone, so I cut up. Straight away From the wild unknown country Where I could not go around I came to a high place Of darkness and light The dividing line ran Through the center of town I hitched up my pony To a post on the right Went into a laundry To wash my clothes down A man in the corner they coached me for a match I knew right away He was not ordinary He said, are you looking? something easy to catch. I said I got no money, man.
3: He said that's necessary. Uh, we, uh, we could go on. <laughs> it's already no, past We, can't it's go already on, past we go forever, but you're on this the coast time. There is one last question I want to make sure that we touch on in this one, Ransal, because we're going to have you back for Artificial Intelligence when we get there. Sure. Uh, You were recently... I guess not too recently, but, uh, you know, relatively recently, uh, 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 had a part in a great motion picture by the name of Uncut Gems. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Can you tell us how that happened? Yeah, you told us like you mean, met what Leonard the hell Cohen, you were but doing how then. did you meet the Safti yeah, brothers? Yeah, with Josh and Benny Safti? Okay, so um,
4: I met the Safti brothers. Well, they saw me before I met them, but it was a, a, an event at the New York Public Library where they uh you know would have different authors talk about their books and stuff like that and uh rick mayowitz a dear friend of mine a great illustrator did a book a big coffee table book on the national lampoon so rick to liven things up um basically invited all of the editors of the lampoon who were still alive you know because doug died but, uh, doug kenny so um and we were kind of each going to talk about the years that we edited the magazine. And, um, and it was like, by now it was like the, the these editors, you know, at, at all, you know, I don't know whether they were self important or just, you know, you know, not, not, uh, uh, didn't have that rebellious street that they had when they were editing the Lampoon. Right. So, uh, and it was kind of boring. Mm-hmm. So I get up there to talk about the years that I did the Lampoon. And I said, you know, one of the things I'm proudest of was getting uh, some, you know, great comedians to actually write for us. And, you know, one of them is it was Gilbert Gottfried. Mm, and I didn't say, you know, that uh, the reason that Gilbert Gottfried would come up was because at this point in his life, he was, you know, such a nerd that he really couldn't even talk to a woman. So, <laughs> so I told him that we'll put him in the photo funnies so he could see naked tits. <laughs> and sure enough, whenever we had a photo shoot for the photo funnies, Gilbert would come up and hang out for hours the lampoon. So, uh, so I said, uh, so I, I just want to, you know, give you an example of what, you know, uh, um, Gilbert was doing for us and I uh, Gilbert did a piece something like the 15 dirtiest jokes that got me kicked off the Brandy Carlyle tour or something, <laughs> something 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 like that the girl from the Go-Go's or whatever her name was anyway so I start telling these filthy disgusting <laughs> filthy jokes and, uh, and don't forget half the audience is these old dowagers from yeah. the upper west uh, side. <laughs> who,
2: who all the people who used to work at the Lampoon just happened to have married? Is that right?
4: <laughs> who knows? But I mean, you know, and subscribe, no matter who. Sure. Yeah. And the other half was young people who... And, and up-
2: you're like the one person who was the reason anyone would ever be
4: there. <laughs> exactly. So
2: they just...
4: The guy who was a moderator, who I became very friendly with, him, Paul it later, um, he told me that his, his, he turned pale. He was gonna. Mm. Uh, he literally thought he was gonna get fired. <laughs> <because of it. laughs> and uh, meanwhile, Gilbert was there that night. I, I'm pretty sure that it was uh, that same night. Gilbert was there. And but Gilbert was upstairs uh, because they they were having a they're gonna have a little after party upstairs. And Gilbert was getting a head start. Cause he wanted the free food <laughs> His loved free food so um anyway uh about a week later i'm walking down the street in Soho, and this kid comes up to me and goes ratso ratso
2: we saw you at
4: the at the uh lampoon thing at the public library oh you were so awesome we want you to be in our next movie i said oh. Okay, uh, well, who are you? <laughs> yeah. well, the Josh, you got a
3: random the, person on the street. Yeah, we're yeah. the
4: Safdie brothers, and we do these films. And, you know, we, we did a film called you know, Daddy Long Legs. and blah, blah, blah. So he said, he gives me his number, and he says, we'd really love for you to be in this. So I said, uh, okay, and I, I go back, and I start Googling And I said, holy shit, Daddy,
2: hey, They're great, oh. yeah.
4: It was at cons. It was like, you know, I, I said, I called him right back. I said, I'm in, you know. <laughs> so, uh, the uh, this, so I was in a thing, and you can still go online and, and see it. Uh, it's on Vimeo. It's called The Black Balloon uh, mm-hmm. by the Softy Brothers. And it's a takeoff on the red balloon, where this balloon comes and it comes uh, to New York City. And it gets thrown in the garbage and goes to a dump upstate. And then it comes back and it starts interacting with various people. And it's little vignettes of the balloon and different people. And my spit was the balloon would come down. And I was, uh, so I was playing a guy named Ratso, who was (laughs) a a shock jock. Must have been a tough
3: stretch.
2: Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) like, uh, like Howard Stern. And, you know, As if you were on a, a radio program, or say a podcast, right. <laughs> that's the type of character you're playing. Right. And and uh, uh, and you know, I I uh, you
4: know they knew that I wrote the uh, two books with the first two books with Howard, Private Parts of Miss America. Of course. That's how I started doing, uh, you know, celebrity so-called ghostwriting. But it wasn't ghostwriting because Howard would talk about. Uh, us doing the book for a year before the book came out. Ratso came over and we built this and that. And, you know, so I became the most famous ghostwriter in history, which was an oxymoron. But you know, <laughs> anyway. So, um, so and and my I had a, a producer who was like my Robin, and so I got fired because I called uh, and you know in the this comes out in the in the film. I got fired because I called Obama half a Schwarzer.
2: Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ian, we might have to explain what that term means, but we'll do it off the air. You can fill me it's in. A, Evan. It's it's, a, it's Yiddish. <laughs> I figured. Yeah. It's
4: it, yeah, Yiddish for black. So yeah. um, so basically, um, but it was you know, so I got uh, I got canned, and she stayed on, and meanwhile she's i'm waiting for her, stalking her waiting for her to come out of the office building we used to work at and i and i was going to tell her to get my job back to go back and say you know i should be on this thing and you know and 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 then i you know the scenes with me in the balloon and i show the fact that you know uh like i'm talking to the balloon at one point and i think i was talking about uh how horrible you know racism was and how i remembered when i was a kid i you know i was old enough to see uh, places in like and even in like maryland where there was you know four uh, bathrooms men white and a men white men colored you know female, women white women colored and I was talking about, you know, what an abomination that was and how horrible that was. So the, my character was more sympathetic. You're with,
2: speaking to the balloon in, the, in this scene? Huh? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. How was the balloon to work with? Yeah, the balloon was great. Didn't misalign. I mean, you
4: know, <laughs> uh, um, we had a great cinematographer, the guy who did a lot of the early films with Josh. Uh, Josh and Josh
2: uh, They They all look great. Yeah. Oh,
4: yeah. I mean,
2: they're, they're super talented guys. So, uh,
4: so, uh, you know, so, so Josh and Benny would then give me cameos in in all their films. So at one point, uh, uh, Josh said, uh, you got to come up. So at the beginning of the film, Josh said, you got to come up and just hang out on the set. So I came up and that's where I I met, uh, what's his name? Sandler? Yeah, and Sandler and I hit it off immediately. I mean, he's... I a, can see that.
2: <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you would. It seems Be like five. all of the people, almost everyone you've mentioned is Jewish. I, except <laughs> for, uh, I guess, Joni Mitchell's not Jewish. It, John, Cale. John Cale. John Cale, not Jewish. <laughs> is John Cale like an honorary Jew in some weird way, would you say? The, the like, Welsh
3: I, The Welsh are the Jews of England. Like in a weird
2: way. He like. Married- but, he married two Jews. Did he? There you go. <laughs> two Jews. You see,
4: he had a daughter.
1: With
4: you know how a Jew. So s- his daughter's Jewish. Some go.
2: people are who are really just straight up not Jewish. But they kind of are like Ian, my co-host here. I sort of think of as sort of Jewish wow, by, that's by association. The <laughs>
3: kindest thing you've ever said about me, Evan. <laughs> i
2: so. You know, I know that he likes delis enough. Like he gets he gets enough of what it's about. And and so I, I like to think, would you maybe agree that John Kills like sort of like a, Spiritually. Silver, a silver Jew? A silver Jew, yeah. yeah. Yeah,
4: he's very hamish. <laughs> he's a good, you know, he's a good guy. He's a Hamisher guy. And John, you know, um, he's actually as he's, you know, getting sober was a huge thing. Mm. And uh, uh, and he's just uh, uh, so generous mm. in spirit now. Uh, I, I know that uh, uh, when my album came out, uh, was, Billboard was doing an article on my album, and they interviewed me and my producer, uh, Vin, Cachione, who has a group called Caged Animals, a great, great producer. We did a whole album in his little front room in Bushwick under his apartment. Mm-hmm. And it just sounds incredible. So, uh, you know, uh, so the guy from Billboard says, uh, I'm going to try to get in touch with Kale. I said, good luck. Because <laughs> you know, he doesn't you know, do interviews hardly ever. Yeah, And uh, so he goes, you know, I give him the name as. John's manager, and uh, she uh, sets us up, and John talks to the guy, and not only talks to the guy, but he basically says, you know, uh, I wish I had the quote in front of me, but it's something like, you know, it was it was such a pleasure to work with a, a, a lyricist of the highest caliber, like mm. Brad, yeah, and beautiful, and he, beautiful. Banged, and, he uh. and he compared me to Dylan.
2: Oh my oh. god. Okay. <laughs> so you're telling I, I I'll say it so you, nobody else has to that Larry Razo Sloman was com- was told he was a great lyricist by Bob Dylan and then many years later was compared to Bob Dylan by John Kale. You you're like bookended uh <laughs> by greatness and you're still here, he's still here. Everybody's still around. Um it's and we're gonna have you back by the way if you, if if we can of
4: course
3: Sneak, if, back.
2: If, if yeah, yeah, sneak no, so you back if we can sneak you back I love
4: what you guys do so before we go let me just finish the story uh so I'm hanging out and you know we're bonding uh, at the uh when they was shooting because you know a film shoot is just boring as hell because you know they have to set up each thing it takes an hour for the lights to get right the camera to get everything together and then finally So, you know, finally uh, Adam gets called and, uh, you know, and and it was a fun day. So then about a month later, uh, I get a call from uh, Josh. And Josh says, look, we got to get you in and we have a spot for you, a cameo. Uh, You're going to do something with uh, Adam. Uh, And uh, it's, uh, you know, Adam plays this uh, 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 jewelry, this Jewish guy in the, uh, uh, Joy the district. yeah yeah in the the diamond district and <clears throat> you didn't
2: spend enough time in new york excuse me I, it's, it's such I, a hideous I, and weird place in new york city but it's very special it's a cool place to yeah the
4: diamond district at 47th
2: street anyway so uh so this is like right
4: before passover and he's rushing from i think from his mistress who he works with to uh to go out to Long Island to his Jewish wife that he's cheating on. (laughs) And so so he's walking this way down the street and I'm walking this way towards and I see him and I'm just supposed to say, uh, um, uh, Hey, good, you know, good Pesach, (laughs) Passover, whatever. And he goes, you too, Larry. That's what he's supposed to say, right? So about the fourth take, I don't know it. Adam goes uh, uh, I, and I and he's coming down, and I said, "Hey, good Pesach." Uh, and Adam just, without missing a beat, says, "Oh, so you're a Jew again, Larry?" <laughs> <laughs> it's like such what a, a
2: what a real, crazy line!
4: It was such a brilliant ad lib, right? So. Uh, <laughs> So then, um, rocks. so then, you know, we finished rap, we we're rapping for the day, and uh, uh, a few weeks later, maybe a month later, I get a call from Josh, and he goes, "You're not going to believe this," and I said, "What?" He says, "We just got the trailer back." Oh, it Ooh. makes
2: it into the trailer, doesn't it? Not
4: makes it. It's the first scene in the
2: trailer. How you
0: doing, How's it, How's it going? How are with, you? With, how are you? Pesach are you? All right, Larry, you're a Jew again.
4: Welcome back. <laughs> you know, and, I
1: knew and, that and, that, and that and sounded Josh
2: familiar. Says, Josh says,
4: I swear, we had nothing to do with this. You know, when well, you give it to a company that picks out and, and puts together trailers. Mm-hmm. And he says, we own this shit up oh, here, so we saw it. But you're the, you're the first scene mm-hmm. in the trailer. All right,
2: well, if I can close out this episode, I, I just think that that's a perfect example about how when you're around, just magical things tend to happen, and I don't think it's a coincidence. So uh, we need you to come back on the podcast so we have a, another uh, sure. special episode because this has been great. Anytime. Thanks so much. Anytime.
3: Our pleasure entirely, Rat. So any uh, any plugs or anything you want uh, for the folks out there listening? I guess listen to uh, the record on Spotify. Anything yeah, it's else? Great.
4: Yeah, Stubborn Heart. It's called, it's on Spotify. And uh, uh, I'm I'm uh, in various stages of, uh, I've, I've decided not to write books anymore because it's just too much of a pain in the ass. No. So I'm now uh, um, uh, creating, co-creating and, and uh, executive producing TV shows. And we have about three or four TV shows in various stages of Getting ready to pitch to next three or
2: four. Yeah. Wow, man. Just your hands and everything all the time forever, and including our podcast. God bless us. Yeah.
4: (laughs) Anyways, uh, yeah. So you know, and and hopefully by the time we do the next one, I'll be able to actually plug something. There you yeah, go. I'm yeah, sure it'll be, you will.
3: it'll be a couple months down the line, so that should give you plenty of time to yeah. uh, you know, cross your t's and dot your i's.
2: Yeah, I've never been more confident in anything in my life that you'll have something <laughs> to plug by then. All um. right, thanks, guys. Joke a
0: Your Mercury mouth In the missionary times And your eyes like smoke And your prayers like rhymes And your silver cross And your voice like chimes Oh, who among them do they think could Bury you With your pockets well Protected at last And your streetcar visions Which you place on the grass And your flesh like silk And your face like glass Who among them do they think could carry you? your deck of cards missing the jack and the ace and your basement clothes and your hollow face who among them could think he could out kiss you with your silhouette When the sunlight dims Into your eyes Where the moonlight swims And your matchbook songs And your gypsy hymns Who among them would even try To impress you So Tyrus, with their convict list, are all waiting in line for that geranium kiss. And you wouldn't know it would happen like this. But who among them really wants just to kiss you? With your childhood flames On your midnight road And your Spanish manners And your mother's drugs And your cowboy mouth And your curfew plugs Who among them do you could resist you Businessmen They all did decide To show you Where the dead angels are That they used to hide But why did they pick you To sympathize With their side How could they ever Have mistaken you You'd accepted the blame for the farm But with the sea at your feet And the phony false alarm And with the child of a hoodlum Wrapped up in your arms How could they ever have persuaded you Said I'd cry prob- They Just had to go And you're gentlest now Which you just can't help but show Who among them Do you think would employ you? Now you stand with your thief You're on his parole Your holy medallion Which your fingertips now do fold And your saint-like face And your ghost-like soul Ah, who among them Do you think could ever destroy you? Oh, 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 sad-eyed lady of the Lord (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>